You're listening to Season 2, Episode Number 5 of Strike the Match. In this episode, my guest is Jim Haney, the Director of Global Research for the International Mission Board. Jim has been a missiologist and a researcher for many years. In this podcast, we talk about the importance of good research and how that results in healthy missionary strategy. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with pastor and missiologist, Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. Hey, I really appreciate you being a season two listener of Strike the Match. In just a moment, I'm going to get into the conversation with uh, Jim Haney on research and mission strategy. Uh, But I just want to give you a a word of announcement uh, for season two listeners. My book, To the Edge, Reflections on Kingdom Leadership, Mission, and Innovation, is being listed at 41% off the uh, paperback price through CreateSpace, my publisher of this book. If you like what you hear on this podcast and what you read at my blog, jdpain.org, I think you'll enjoy what you'll find in To the Edge. And so if you want to get a copy of this book or several copies for others on your leadership team at 41% off the uh, list price, go to Create Space. And uh, when you check out, uh, the uh, coupon code that you need to use uh, is as follows. I'll repeat it a couple of times. It's the letter J and the number 48ZZ7EU. That's J48ZZ7EU. Hope you get a chance to check out the book To the Edge. And uh, now let's jump into this conversation that I had a short time ago with Jim Haney. One of the things that is critical to being wise kingdom stewards of what the Lord has provided for us today when it comes to making disciples of all nations is understanding our global realities, understanding what's taking place uh, across the world uh, at the time of this recording, you know, we're looking at 7 billion people on, on the planet. Uh, I'm here in the United States, uh, third largest country in the world when it comes to population. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you get an idea of, of, of how to be faithful with, with what God's given us? He's told us to go and make disciples of all nations, and that's, that's something that we're to do. We're not to withhold the gospel from anyone. Uh, he's told us to, to preach the gospel to, to all. Uh, but but as as wise kingdom stewards, how do we be faithful with the resources God's given us? Financial resources, people resources, time, uh, opportunities, a uh, multitude of other things. And so one of the things that I have been very passionate about over the years is the issue of good research, good research that drives uh, healthy missionary strategy. And so today on uh, Strike the Match, uh, it's my my pleasure to have with us Jim Haney. Uh, Jim uh, is actually the director of global research for the International Mission Board, and uh, he has been with the International Mission Board for 35 years. He uh, also served uh, in West Africa as a church planter and uh, the national director of evangelism for the Ghana Baptist Convention. Uh, Some other things that uh, Jim is significantly involved in as well, he's uh, the registrar for the Harvest Information System. Uh, and he's also connected to Vision 5-9, which is a, a ministry that's related to engaging Muslim people groups. Uh, Jim has uh, been serving the Lord in a multitude of roles for many, many years, and he, he is a man who comes with a great amount of wisdom uh, from experience and wisdom from research as well. And so, so Jim, I just want to say thank you for being here, so welcome to Strike the Match. 
My pleasure, J.D. Thanks a lot. Jim, uh, is there anything before we jump in and uh, get started today talking about uh, unreached people groups and uh, studying peoples of the world that we need to know about you that uh, some of the listeners may, may not be aware of? Well, I've... Um, it's okay have, to brag, brother. I, this is okay to brag on this show. I have a, <laughs> I have a wife, Donna. If we're talking about bragging, I would brag on her for sure. And two two great daughters, Heather and Rachel, that are grown and married. Uh, they live in, in Missouri, where we were from originally, before we went to uh, Africa. I'm a, a graduate of Central Missouri State University, Southwestern Seminary, and Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So I have uh, those three degrees. And um, one of the things about my background is uh, a person who has a background in sciences. I just remember when I began going to seminary that my friends all thought that I had gone crazy, you know, with that calling. And I would probably never use critical thinking skills again. But uh, as, as many of our folks do when we go to the field, it's that passion for lostness that really, I think, backs a lot of us up into research because we just want to know how much of the world is lost and, and who's being engaged, who's not being engaged. And uh, whether we use the same terminology or not, one of the things we all share together is that, that passion for the lost. I remember a ver- reading a verse when I was called into ministry that uh, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, I was not called to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be robbed of his power. Hmm. So I think uh, we look at the world with our research, and at best it's uh, looking uh, into glass darkly. It's a real model. Mm-hmm. And we, we try different models on to try to help us strategically, and then uh, we move from faith to faith. And our, our goal really eventually is the greatest evaluation that will happen is when Jesus comes back, will he find faith on earth? Yeah. Yeah. Man, I tell you, I know that over the years uh, I have uh, drawn heavily from uh, your work uh, and the others that are connected to the uh, Global Research Center there at the International Mission Board, and I've pointed a lot of people to uh, to your online uh, resources and and so it's it's really it's really great that we're having this conversation today, and, I, and I'm, I'm truly blessed uh, that you're here. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. So today, uh, Jim and I are going to spend uh, a little bit of time talking about um, unreached people groups, uh, unreached, unengaged people groups, and things related to that. We're going to kind of take a a little journey through maybe a little bit of history behind some of that terminology and where the evangelical church is today. And and the reason why I'm wanting us to, to have this particular conversation at this point in time is that uh, you know, we uh, we're 40 years removed from that 1974 address that Ralph Winter gave at uh, Lausanne One, where uh, the notion of the hidden peoples of the world, uh, which eventually became unreached peoples, uh, grew has grown in popularity. And so, some of this terminology we're very familiar with. But I know that some of you that are listening to this podcast, you're not very familiar with this terminology, or maybe you've got questions about some of this terminology. So, so Jim and I are going to take a little time to talk about that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, for those of you that are really familiar with uh, the language as well, uh, I think he and I are going to talk about a few things that may may challenge your thinking as well uh, today also. So, so, so Jim, let's, let's go ahead and, and jump in. Let me throw this question out to you um, to kind of get us started. Uh, we obviously talk about unreached people groups, so, or, and define it as, you know, or, or abbreviate that as UPG. So, so what, what is a UPG? What is an unreached people group? 
Well, we've been looking at unreached people groups at least since uh, the very founding of, of, um, of the Hosan movement back in 1974. And even right now as we speak, J.D., IMB is in the process of refining our own critical success factors, and one of those would be what we want to do in relation to unreached peoples and places. Um, in the past, it's been defined in so many different ways, but basically when you're talking about an unreached people group, you're talking about a people group that does not have the capacity to continue the task of evangelism without outside teams. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when we talk about even engaging people groups, um, people get hung up at that very first step. But the, the real heart of any engagement, if you're getting engaged to your girlfriend, is that you eventually get married and you have a relationship. And that's what we want to see between churches and teams that go out to have a relationship with a people group uh, and build those relationships into uh, ongoing love for that people group so that uh, when we're reaching a people group, we're talking about reaching to people so that there are indigenous teams of capable leaders who have understood the love of Christ. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones that end up multiplying generations of disciples and churches in a sustained movement to Christ. And so when we're looking at whether a people group is reached or unreached, that's, that's what we're looking for. And I think over the years, uh, one of the concerns that I have and that I'm speaking about and writing about these days is that sometimes we re rely too much on the metrics rather than these qualities of seeing indigenous teams, mm, yeah. capable leaders, uh, generations of disciples, and with churches that are sustained uh, in mo a movement to Christ. So um, we're really trying to see that quality as well as the just the numeric uh, indicators. So, so that... Um you know, I know that we're going to kind of talk about the, some of those numeric indicators in just a second. Do you sense that in evangelical circles today uh, that that there may be um, maybe a move away from percentages of those that are you know considered evangelical, or are we going to keep those percentages but also add some other metrics to it? I don't think we'll ever completely get away from the the uh, the two percent uh, evangelical. Um, term we use for, uh, standard we use for determining whether people group is reached or unreached. But I, I think we've relied too heavily on those metrics. Mm. And, and the reason we've done that is because of the way we view research and statistics. Um, it's, it's very interesting. It's one of the phenomena in statistics that people sometimes look at data or numeric data as, as um, more objective than a narrative data. And it's really hard, you know, to tabulate an average and find the mean, median, and mode for narrative data. Mm -hmm. So we, we tend to create indices to tell us, uh, to answer questions that otherwise could be answered very simply. For example, um, you know, we, we, we think about, for example, whether a people group is reached or unreached, whether they're above 2% evangelical or below 2% evangelical, it's, it's really handy to have that number. But at the same time, wouldn't we just want to um, wouldn't we just want to ask people, you know, we have teams out there among these people groups. Wouldn't we just want to ask them, are, are certain qualities being reached and therefore judge whether or not a people group is reached or unreached based upon the qualities we want to see? Hmm. Uh, so I think we backed into the number of two percent or five percent or ten percent. We can talk about that in a minute, a little about the history of those percentages. 
But whatever the percentage is, it was meant to be something that would be an objective standard. However, at the same time, uh, just taking the population of the church uh, divided by the population of the people group and figuring out the percent evangelical or percent Christian, there's a lot of subjectivity in choosing those metrics and making one metric a standard for the tipping point for any people group becoming reached. Yeah. That's yeah. also highly subjective. So let, let me throw out another term to you, because um, we'll come back and touch on some of those things in just a second. But uh, this this concept of unengaged, unreached people groups. You know, for the longest time we're talking about unreached people groups, but then all of a sudden something comes on the radar and and people are talking about unengaged, unreached people groups, UUPGs. What, what, what is that? Well, back in 1999, for IMB at least, um, we, we wanted to come up with a term that was different than the term that was being used uh, for what was happening among people groups, whether they were reached or unreached. So we had some people groups that were unreached, but what do we call those people groups when there are teams in there? So um, the term that was being used before 1999, uh, at least at IMB, was work among as one word. Work, work among. among, okay. Yeah, we were work. We were working among them. Okay. As my okay. wife likes to say, some people groups had warm bodies, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know what? A lot of those folks weren't um, weren't weren't evangelizing necessarily. So we we needed a term that really was sh- would show that we were doing more than just simply working among a people group with a literacy project or or meeting human needs in some way. We wanted some term to really show whether church planting was going on. So at IMB, we came up with a term that we would apply for our own teams on the field to determine whether or not uh, what we consider to be the main thing was really happening. There's a lot of controversy related to the main thing too, but what we wanted to see was for, uh, we wanted to see church planting strategies underway among all people groups. Mm -hmm. And so uh, really we, we went from work among, which could be any work that missionaries are doing, to uh, church planning strategies because we wanted to see those implemented. So today, if a people group has church planning strategy being implemented by any evangelical partner, we call that uh, people group engaged. Okay. So yeah. you can have engaged groups and unengaged groups whether there's church planting underway or no church planting underway. And you can have reached people groups and unreached people groups related to whether or not there are multiplying generations of disciples and churches in sustained movements. So, Jim, one of the things that uh, I'm still asked uh, quite frequently w- whenever I'm speaking to different audiences about un- unreached people groups and unengaged unreached people groups, uh, people will sometimes ask me, what, J.D., what do you mean by a people group? Uh, so so what, what, what does that mean, Jim? Well, people group shares common language, history, culture. Uh, there are a couple of other definitions that we apply to a people group mm-hmm. other than that. Uh, we like our, our, our list of the world's people groups to match a couple of criteria. First of all, we hope that the people group list that we have uh, those those entities on the field that, that share a common history, culture, language, that they would, um, that people who look over the list of people groups in their country would say, yes, this is who we are. 
that is what we call an emic test. Or emic is an inside view as opposed to etic, which means uh, named from the outside. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, global research has often tried to name people groups from the outside or even segment people groups from the outside based upon our outside understanding. Mm -hmm. Today, there's so great a cloud of witnesses, though, on the field, uh, even in the majority world, that there's there's no reason why we can't turn that around. And rather than global researchers mandating to the rest of the world, here's your list of people groups, we can actually engage with churches and, and uh, organizations within countries so that they can emically create a list of who they say they are from the inside. Mm -hmm. And then that can become a tributary of information that flows into the wider stream of global research. And we can really draw and learn from our local partners. Yeah, that, that's Wouldn't that's we want to have a list where they say, yes, we've gone through this. This is exactly who we are. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is to include them you know, as part of the part of the solution, the second the second definition we like to use for for people group segmentation is more phenomenological. By phenomenological, I mean that um, a people group is the largest grouping of people whereby the gospel can spread without encountering significant barriers or, of understanding or acceptance. And by that, what I what I mean is that we've always had the, the, the feeling that if we could just go out and, and maybe just plant churches, that every that everyone would come to those churches. We develop programs, we develop mm -hmm. churches, we do it in different languages. Uh, but what we find when we go to the field and we plant those churches is that some people come to them and some people don't. I think if IMB had been able to send missionaries out to church, out to countries, and, and plant churches in English or maybe the trade language, and everybody would have come. I mean, all the people groups and all the segments of those people groups would have come to those churches. We would have probably thought, well, we don't need a people group list. Mm. But what we found was, and just think about your own church in your own city. If you're, if you're listening to this podcast, just think about your own church. How many different languages and peoples and segments of your society are in your church? And how many of them would you would recognize are in your community, but they don't come to your church? So that's what I mean phenomenologically. We go, we plant churches, we observe who comes, mm -hmm. we observe who doesn't come. We make assumptions about those who don't come. And if we do everything we possibly can and they still don't come, we need to have some uh, specific intentional outreach because— we've probably already exhausted the widest uh, uh, grouping whereby the gospel can spread without encountering those barriers of understanding or acceptance. And, and, and the people in our, in our communities, for some reason, they're the ones who get to vote whether or not our churches are helpful for them. Mm. If they're not coming, if they're not coming uh, at all, mm -hmm. or they speak another language or they have a different culture, then either they will change or the church will change and they're not going to change. Yeah. We yeah. have to go to them on their terms. So when we begin to think about the, the, the world's population uh, and how that is divided into people groups, can you throw some numbers out at us about how many people groups do we estimate are in the world today? How many unreached people groups are in the world how many unengaged, unreached people groups are in the world? Sure. If you think about, um, if you think about uh, a circle that's divided into four quarters, so you have four segments. Mm -hmm. About uh, the the whole the whole pie in this case is about eleven thousand five hundred people groups in the world. 
That represents 100% of the, the world's population, 7.3 billion people. About half of that pie is going to be unreached people groups, and about half is going to be reached people groups. Mm. And uh, it's a little bit more toward the unreached side, but just uh, maybe 50 to 55% would be in, in unreached people groups, and a similar population, about 4.2 billion in unreached people groups. Mm -hmm. And then uh, within the unreached, you have the engaged unreached and the unengaged unreached. And again, that's about a quarter of the pie or about half of uh, dividing the unreached world into two halves. Uh, the difference here is is significant, though, in that while there, while about a quarter of the world's people groups are in unengaged, unreached people groups, it's only about 193 million people in those unengaged, unreached people groups, and uh, that that means that uh, about 2.7 percent of the world's population is in the 3,060 unengaged, unreached people groups. Now that can be very, very misleading, and I'll tell you why. What about this total unreached people group population in the world? While about half of the people of the world are in that, 4.2 billion people live today in unreached people groups. Very, very few of those, though, live in unengaged unreached people groups. What that means is that, that we've done pretty good about getting the first, second, third team into most of the world's unreached people groups. Uh, the remaining unengaged unreached people groups are really very small, mm, okay. about 60,000 on the average in size. But what it means is, though, there's a huge amount of work to do in the engaged or underserved unreached people groups because they may only have one, two, three, four teams, mm -hmm. and uh, there's there's huge population segments there. So one of, we, we really need to have a two-pronged attack. The unengaged unreached people groups, they need their very first team, no doubt about it. Why, by 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 what reason can we give that we would not allow a people group to have even one team among them? Mm. That has to be a focus. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have uh, these that just have a few teams that are vastly underserved, 20 million, 30 million, 40 million people in a people group, or 40, uh, 20, 30, 40 million people in a people group, but just a few teams. They're vastly underserved. So mm -hmm. we need we need church-based teams to come alongside other teams that are already there, join them in their strategy so we can reach these huge unreached segments of unreached people groups. So so that, that brings up a good point. Let, let me kind of just uh, ask it, in, or let me kind of make the point in, in sort of a sort of a, a question to you, Jim. So, so I'm hearing you say that just because we have got among an unreached people group uh, a gospel presence, people preaching the gospel, and even people who've come to faith out of that people group, uh, am I correct in assuming that you're saying that the task of the Great Commission is not done just because we have some people in that unreached people group that are followers of Jesus? Sure, we want to see progress made. We want to see we want to see them get to the place. Remember what I said earlier that uh, the goal of engagement is actually to reach a people group, and so we could have a few teams there that are engaging, but they haven't reached the people group yet, and they're 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 wanting to get they're wanting to build capacity, not just of teams that come over to help them, but teams from from those who are training within the country themselves, those who already understand the, the language and worldview and culture, mm -hmm. the indigenous uh, believers. We want to see them uh, reach their own people group through t 
through having their own teams of indigenous capable leaders that can multiply disciples and multiply churches in a sustained movement to Christ. Mm -hmm. Whenever that happens, we feel like we've accomplished two of our three goals. We've engaged them. Now we've seen a sustained movement to Christ. And there's even a third goal that we, we don't keep a whole lot of track of, but it's very, very important, critical, that we want to see those that we have reached uh, um, enlisted as teams in the Great Commission mm. by their own right. Mm -hmm. And today, many people groups that are engaged in the world are engaged by people groups that a few years ago were both unengaged and unreached. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting to see these uh, now not only no longer unengaged, no longer unreached, but they're, they're reaching themselves. And now they're reaching uh, beyond those people groups. So, so basically, you're, you're, you're seeing those that come out of the harvest are now becoming fruit-bearing disciples in their own contextualized churches, engaging others with the gospel. Exactly. So to put those three points very succinctly, unengaged, unreached people groups need their first team, no doubt about it. Engaged and underserved unreached people groups already have a team, but they need more teams. Mm -hmm until such time that they have these multiplying generations. And, and those that ha are multiplying and, and sustaining evangelism within their own people group, they need to go to the third step, and that is being enlisted into the Great Commission so that they also go cross-cultural. They become our partners in the Harvest Force. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Let me jump back to the, to the, the numbers uh, that we talked about just a moment ago. So, so for for some time uh, there has there's been uh, this statistic that's out there of of 2% you know less than 2% uh, of a of a people group being evangelical would would constitute that people group being labeled as as unreached uh, and i and i recognize that there are others out there that they would say well we also need to look at you know the christian adherence rate in other words you know 5% or less christian adherence uh, to you know the Christian faith and less than two percent evangelical would con constitute an unreached people group. I know the IMB uh, subscribes to that less than two percent, or at least what I've seen on the website there. Uh, so that number just didn't it just didn't fall from the sky. Uh, you know, the the history there's a history there, and and so can we talk for a few minutes about kind of the history because that that number used to be very large, a very large percentage. Uh, that's right. And, and uh, according to uh, Reaching the Unreached, the Old New Challenge, edited by Harvey Kahn, who was a professor of missions at Westminster Theolo Theological Seminary, mm -hmm. he traced out in his book, Reaching the Unreached, a little bit about the history. It was a con uh, compendium, actually, and Ralph Winter wrote a couple of chapters in there. So it was really Ralph Winter in Kahn's book that, that came up with a little bit of the chronology for us. But in 1974, when the Lausanne began, uh, in the explanatory introduction of the Unreached People Groups Directory, was passed out. The definition of unreached was not really firmly established back in 1974. It was kind of kind of formless and void. <laughs> but people, people, you know, people were at least thinking about, you know, we have some people groups around the world that just really need. Uh, they're hidden people groups. We don't see them, as you mentioned before earlier, JD. Um, but the the very so they're thinking about. How, how can we kind of get a handle on, on where these people groups are and what they are? So they uh, mentioned 
20% figure mm -hmm. in the phrase where there's no appreciable or recognized church body effectively communicating the message within the unit itself. But they came up with a 20% figure for Christians. Mm. And, uh, you know, as people started thinking about that, I guess, I guess for, from uh, a Western perspective, a people group that has less than 20% Christians is probably very unreached. Mm. But when you think about the whole global list, um, if you use a 20% figure, then then most of the people groups of the world are going to be unreached people groups. Right. Uh, there's very, very few that would be greater than 20% uh, even Christian. So what they, they, the, their first attempt at defining the percentage was really, really too high. Uh, then after Lausanne, they started thinking about this, and they— they said, well, then let's let's change. Let's keep the 20 percent. But let's say that an unreached people group is a group that's less than 20 percent practicing Christian, um, maybe going to church on Sunday or going to a Bible study. Um, so there was another number that was thrown out, but this time it was a little bit different. Then the problem with that was, well, how can you determine who a practicing Christian is? Mm -hmm. Are you just going to measure church attendance or Sunday school or whatever? Uh, then in 1978, uh, Coleman and Winter introduced the concept of hidden. There's Robert Coleman. Right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and Ralph Winter. Yeah. They used the word hidden because we, we were actually blind to these people. We really didn't understand a whole lot about them. Uh, as time went on, the, the different numbers were used. 20% was lowered to 5% and lowered at some point to 2%. And then uh, whether or not you were just focused on evangelical faith and practice, uh, you would use uh, evangelical percentage. Or if you were thinking about the wider uh, church, you might use Christian adherence. Um, but then finally, by uh, there was a meeting in Dallas and another meeting in Dallas. And, and well, they call it Dallas, too, but it happened in Chicago, if that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> like Lausanne happens in, uh, you know, Manila. So, <laughs> yeah, back in 1982, there was a meeting for un just to, just to kind of get a hold of this. And they defined unreached people group as a group which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians able to evangelize this people group. And so it was at that meeting that the 20% practicing benchmark was dropped in favor of more qualitative description of unreached people groups. And so one of the, one of the things on my heart today is I understand that a certain benchmark number of Christians or number of evangelicals is important mm -hmm. as one indicator. But I think what's happened uh, in, in our use of the term unreached is we have clung on to a, a percentage without, without really remembering or without really focusing. Or, or I'd like to see us get back to the more qualitative aspects. So we're looking for uh, indigenous community, mm -hmm. multiplying generations, uh, people able to finish the task themselves so that um, they can do it through just evangelism. And, and then that would free us up to go uh, into more cross-cultural situations. And I'm afraid that the percentages have, have left the more qualitative aspects of the definition behind. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see us recover those. Let me let me toss out this uh, this thought to you, uh, Jim. Um, uh, some things that I've been chewing on for for several months now, and uh, I know I know you have have as well. Um, but but for the sake of our our listeners uh, today, uh, maybe we can have a little conversation on on this issue. Um, several months ago, I I started you know thinking about the importance of history. 
uh, missions history. Uh, when it comes to uh, being wise stewards with um, developing missionary strategy and, and giving uh, giving priority uh, to certain uh, unengaged, unreached people groups. Um, and and I've, I've noticed over the years that while there is a great value among missiologists to study missions history, I'm not seeing how that is... Um, is uh, is applying over to to our strategy and, and our approach to thinking about you know, using you know good stewardship, and, and so so here's here's the idea that I, I want to throw out to you. Um, we know from church history that there are certain people groups that are living today that um, at, you know two three centuries ago uh, they had a, a Christian presence. Um, uh, that were were among them, uh, yet two or three centuries removed, uh, there we consider them unreached and, and in many cases unengaged, unreached. Uh, so, so Jim, what 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 do we need to be thinking about when it comes to this notion of uh, looking back in history uh, at what the Spirit has done in generations before we ever ever even you know came onto the scene, and to allow that to maybe shape you know, how we give priority to some of these unengaged, unreached people groups, since we do have limited resources. Sure. Um, yeah, you make a good point there, J.D., because, uh, I mean, at, at what point did we even have the term evangelical, mm. right? Mm. I think uh, the Holy, Holy Spirit <laughs> did pretty well before we came to <laughs> the term evangelical. That, we, that's right. Christianity uh, was, was pretty successful. And moved around the world in in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a few points. Um, while we do have two to three centuries ago, for example, in Europe, uh, a Christian presence, that Christian presence did not always meet up with our definition that we're we're actually looking to see for a reached people group, a people group that has the capacity to continue the task of evangelism. Uh, without without outside teams mm-hmm. and so let's just let's just say for a minute we're trying to evaluate for any generation uh, which which parts of the world are reached and which parts of the world are unreached so from a very practical standpoint there would be those who would say regardless of, of, of a historical presence of, of uh, Christianity or Christendom within a people group we need to evaluate that for today um, there are some people groups that two or three hundred years ago may have had churches, and that, of course, is a Christian presence. They would have had Christian adherence. They would have had people baptized into those churches. But those churches um, could be argued also not only did not facilitate the continuing reaching of their own people group, uh, but for some reason gave way to other uh, philosophies like secularism mm-hmm. and even in their own day, when Christendom was in Europe, it could be argued that Christendom was not only not continuing the task of evangelism, but it was a barrier to evangelism. Mm-hmm. I know from my own English Baptist history and my own French Huguenot history that, that some of our ancestors paid a great price for sola fide and sola scriptura. Um, at the same time, IMB does not evaluate a people group on the basis of their religion or church alone. We recognize that even in the Southern Baptist Convention, we have many who would call themselves evangelicals or Southern Baptist, 
who may not be saved. Mm -hmm. right. They right. may not have personal faith in Christ. We would be wrong to call them evangelical in faith and practice, even though they're in evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. uh, also, at the same time, in, in uh, Europe, we will have uh, charismatic or born-again or um, um, evangelical portions of Catholic and Orthodox churches, where even though they are in that tradition, they may continue in that tradition for some reason, maybe because of their own family or their own culture, but yet uh, these people are born again. Right. So one of the things we cannot do in the current day to evaluate whether or not someone is a believer or not is to take numbers from self-reports from churches and even conventions and say that that's the number of people who are born again. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is we have to look and see when uh, we can do this because we have teams in these people groups. Do we see any evidence that regardless of what people call themselves, that that evangelical faith and practice is unfolding uh, through through making disciples, uh, new churches, training, and and by this simply here's what we're looking for. Uh, we're we're not looking again for. Uh, the, the, the stamp or the church or the religiosity that you carry, but what's happening in your life. We want to see the following in evangelical faith and practice. Mm -hmm. We want to see people who, who know that Jesus Christ is their sole source of salvation through personal faith in Him. And it's that personal faith that saves them. And, and after that, and as a part of that, conversion and regeneration come through the Holy Spirit. We want to see the Bible as primary authoritative, inerrant, infallible. And we're very suspicious of churches and, and denominations who raise something up to the same standard and, and primary authority as, as Scripture. And then also we want to see among uh, those that are evangelical, we want to see this mandate at work of the Great Commission. So we can observe that. Our teams and people groups can observe is there something happening here in Europe or in Yemen or in northern Africa, the Middle East or in South Asia, whereby the people in this people group have taken responsibility for those very things that are so important to Christian faith and practice? Mm -hmm. And if there are adherents that are not doing that, then we have to be very suspicious of a people group that maybe six, eight or 10 percent Christian adherent. And maybe that's reported as a part of their denominational or church figures. Uh, we have to be very careful where that's in place. However, uh, that people group does not have teams that are multiplying churches without outside help. And even more, where those churches may actually be a barrier to the spread of evangelical faith and practice because it is either taking members from their church or uh, is seen as uh, controversial or mm -hmm. disruptive to those to those cultures. So what we're really talking here about in Europe is Christendom. Mm -hmm. And has Christendom uh, given us, among the people groups of Europe, and even America for that matter, has it given us a type of spiritual Christianity that is going to foster these uh, limited, limitless teams coming out from churches, or uh, is it just going to be, be a um, kind of a uh, something that people just say that they're under because of tradition mm -hmm. and uh, end up saying, well, we have Abraham as our father, so yeah. that's enough. So 
on going back to the the historical issue, um, and I know this is kind of in the in the realm of theory, but I, but I think it's 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 based on some element of reality that's out there. You know, let, let's imagine that we have we have two unengaged, unreached people groups, and and that we have the 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 capability of doing historical studies among uh, these two groups, and and so let's let's just for the you know the sake of conversation we'll call uh, one group uh, people group A and the other one people group B, and, and we know that the history of people group A four hundred years ago had some kind of Christianization, some kind of Christian presence. Whether or not we can identify whether it's true, you know, salvific faith or not, but it had some kind of Christian presence. And then you have people group B uh, that from our historical studies, to our knowledge, there has never been a Christian presence, no known believers to have ever existed among that group, no Christianization. Um, do those realities exist out there? I mean, even though maybe we haven't done the historical research, I mean, do you think that those are are out? Those situations are possibly there, and and if they are, do we need to think in terms of maybe giving a greater priority to that people group B when we're clear on the fact that in all likelihood there's never been one known believer or even a Christian adherent in their history? Sure, I, I would definitely say that we need to uh, focus on those that, as far as we know, have had no. Uh, possibility at, at all. Uh, I think uh, that is a first step before we look at those that may be uh, unreached in our generation. Um, they, they, they might have been reached before. Uh, I, th- I think also uh, one of the things about that is what we're talking about here is actually reaching as opposed to uh, maybe revival. Mm. So when we talk about Europe, uh, rather than the task of uh, seeing people groups as, as necessarily unreached and without any possibility of coming to Christ in their history, uh, we do, as you mentioned before, uh, two or three hundred years ago in Europe, we had we had strong Christian presence. We still have a lot of a lot of Christians in Europe today mm-hmm. and in America today. So, uh, even though we might look at some neighborhoods and places that are unreached, at least they have the potential there to have Christian resources available. Right? Yeah. So yes, there are definitely some in their in their whole history uh, that we can't find any resource for. We, we don't see that they have any resource. Um, um, they have no written scripture, no Jesus film, no radio broadcast, no gospel recording, no audio scripture, uh, no Bible stories or gospel films. Um, they have no resources at all. Hmm. And in these places, it's still very, very difficult. Um, you know, there's no freedom to, to, to come to Christ. There's government restrictions. There's a lot of social hostilities, a lot of threats on, on the church. And, of course, these need to be high priorities. Uh, but if you look throughout the last 2,000 years, uh, I think you and I have done this uh, before, at, at those who are likely to have never had a Christian presence at any time, that number is very, very low. We have a scale that we apply to our data called the Global Status of Evangelical Christianity uh, scale. And uh, we look at those that have absolutely no resources today, and the number is uh, about 500 people groups, but the population of those 500 people groups is less than 10 million. Hmm. So I, I would say that there's very, very few people groups that in 
in the whole history of the church have never had any opportunity. Uh, even when you think about the Muslim world before 700 AD, mm-hmm. uh, many of these people, such as those in Northern Africa and the Middle East had, or even Iran or Central Asia, there were, there were Christians scattered everywhere. Uh, of course, Islam had its own effect on, on that. But um, would we say, you know, as we, as we theorize here, would we say that those that had a Christian history before Islam in Northern Africa and the Middle East are not as needy as those maybe over in Pakistan today uh, that have never had any opportunity at all? Jim, I know that the web-based resource, peoplegroups.org, uh, is something that you're connected to. And uh, I want to direct uh, my listeners to to that resource, excellent resource. Uh, you're also connected to uh, peoplegroups.info. Uh, can you share a little bit about peoplegroups.info? Sure. I mentioned before about uh, the interplay of global research and then local research. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the past we haven't had a whole lot of crowdsourcing uh, of local research. It's been pretty much people that sit in a chair like I do who, uh, you know, are the, the, the global researchers, and they're, the, they're the global analysts, and they're the people who have a, an eye on the world and, and this and that and the other. But today, I mean, we just have to really value uh, crowdsourcing. And so global research maintains peoplegroups.org to show us a list of people groups that are found in uh, any country. Mm-hmm. And we can also turn that around to show the countries of the world uh, that any certain people group is found in for, for the diaspora. But what, what, we, what we put on a global list is, the, is one instance of a people group per country to answer the question for the church. Uh, we want to engage the uh, Harsusi in Oman. Where else are they found? And uh, are, uh, you know, is where, yeah, so, and, and the Shahara and the Tagale and the Wali and, and all these, the Berbers, uh, where, what countries are, are these people groups, people groups found in? Mm-hmm. So peoplegroups.org answers the question, uh, is there a people group uh, that I'm looking for in this country? Or what are the what are the people groups in any country? However, what it doesn't show is the locations of that people group in any country, and we we have to be able to answer that question for the team because mm. you can't just say, well, we're engaging with five or six teams, a people group of thirty million, you know, in a country, mm-hmm. and then uh, say that they're engaged throughout the whole country. So obviously, teams want to know. If the people group is found in the country, the next question they want to know is in what places, what locations is that people group found? So peoplegroups.info is our attempt to crowdsource um, people groups that are found in urban centers in the United States and Canada. And it was begun primarily to look at uh, the top 100 metropolitan statistical areas in the United States that has 65% of the U.S. population and 85% of the U.S. immigrant population. Mm-hmm. We figured if we could uh, really find the people groups in those top 100 metropolitan statistical areas, that we would have a really good understanding of what people groups are found in the country. Mm-hmm. And so then peoplegroups.info, once that research is done in those 100 cities, then it informs and serves as a tributary into uh, the wider stream of global research, which is represented on peoplegroups.org. And we would want to see that same sort of crowdsourcing uh, in local initiatives 
in, in different countries, such as we have the Movement for African National Initiatives, MANI, who seeks to uh, help people discover the people groups in their, their own countries. And it, whenever that happens, then that can inform our global list. Mm, that's great. So for those of you that are listening, uh, I want to encourage you to check out those websites, peoplegroups.org, peoplegroups.info, and uh, I'll also throw out to, to you all as well, do a Google search for Global Research Department International Mission Board. They have a wealth of uh, helpful information that's out there uh, as well. Uh, today on uh, Strike the Match, my, my guest uh, has been Jim Haney, who is the director of the Global Research uh, Center for the International Mission Board. Uh, Jim, thank you so very much for being with us today. Welcome, J.D. Thanks for the pleasure. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. Payne. You can find J.D. on Facebook or follow him on Twitter at J.D. underscore Payne. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpayne.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.